0: This episode of Value Hive is brought to you by Tegas. If you enjoy listening to Value Hive, you'll love the Tegas product. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available expert interviews on all the public and private companies that you care about. All you have to do is log in. So if you're tired of high cost and time-consuming expert research calls, give Tegas a try and see for yourself why many of the most trusted and well-respected hedge funds, mutual funds, family offices, allocators, and VCs rely on Tegas to scale their expert research and to get the critical information they need faster than ever. You can sign up for a free trial at Tegas.co forward slash value hive. That's Tegas.co forward slash value hive. And as a personal anecdote i use tegas literally every single day it's the first resource i use when i start researching uh, a new investment and it's one of the last things i do uh, before i finish up rounding out my research and i know you'll love it as much as i do before we dive into today's conversation i want to talk to you about mit investment management company also known as matemco the investment office of mit Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created emergingmanagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimco has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org global investor. That's M-I-T-I-M-C-O dot global investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. All right, Will Thompson, we are continuing my personal deep dive into oil and gas, metals, and mining, uh, entering a space that I'm very green in, trying to learn as much as I can, and uh, what you're doing at Massive Capital and the research you're doing and the companies you invest in is kind of naturally led me to your content. Um, and like we were discussing before the podcast, I had the, I had the pleasure of meeting one of your partners, Chip, uh, over at Vale. A couple of years ago, great guy, and so love what you guys are doing. And I really just want to pick your brain on metals and mining, critical raw materials, and we can just kind of let the conversation go where it leads. Uh, but for those that don't know you, I know you've done a couple of podcasts before this. But for those that don't know you, who is Will Thompson? how did you get started investing, and what led you into the raw materials space? Yeah. Uh, well,
1: thanks for having me. Um, always uh, sort of appreciate the opportunity to. You know, talk with interested people and sort of share what I've learned and try and learn. Um, I've found that these these podcasts are sort of most useful to me because I, I get a lot of feedback from people. Um, so they're great learning opportunities for sort of everyone. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, in terms of my background, uh, kind of a traditional finance background at the start, investment banking, private equity, New York, right out of college, that type of thing. Um, I uh, went back to grad school and focused on, uh, like a lot of people during 2008-2009, I, I lost my job, went back to grad school, uh, studied um, uh, political science or government um, and focused on political risk. And that sort of naturally led to uh, a study of um, natural resources companies because they experience you know, some of the most political risk in our excellent case studies for any analysis of political risk. Um, one thing led to another, I ended up running a, uh, co-managing a, a Lloyds of London Insurance Syndicates, New York book of political risk and credit risk insurance policies. Our clients were all say commodity traders like Glencore looking to buy copper from some mine in Africa uh, or some bank doing project finance or reserve-based lending. Um, so there was a lot of natural resources, a lot of heavy industry, um, and one of the things that sort of struck me at the time, and and you know the industries were materials, energy, and industrials. That's that's sort of the people who get political risk insurance policies uh, and the credit risk insurance policies sort of associated uh, with those industries also. Um, there was already some ESG writing on the wall, uh, at the banks in particular. Um, and the result was underinvestment, um, in energy, in metals and mining. And mostly we saw it in terms of the infrastructure associated with those things rather than the, the, the actual investment in say oil and natural gas or mining. We just saw banks saying, no, thanks. We're good. We don't want to finance that pipeline. Um, ran a very clean book, uh, which means basically, you know, we didn't write a lot of policies that went wrong. Um, and the, the great part about that is, uh, insurance is a low sort of capital requirement business. So you run a clean book. That's great. Uh, but you don't benefit from any of the upside. Um, so I sort of got a little tired of what is a, 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 a book that has an asymmetry, that's kind of wrong. One policy goes wrong and it kind of ruins your entire year. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was really interested in the industries that I was looking at and went out and spoke with a lot of uh, funds in New York and uh, mostly in New York because that's where I was at the time. And everyone was just sort of like, hmm, energy, mining industrials i I guess you can maybe make a little money in industrials but uh this other stuff we we're not interested in that um come go 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 away um so for me at least as a contrarian i was sort of like well if they're all telling me to go away i better start up a fund that focuses on these things that nobody wants to pay attention to uh so that was in 2016 and now you know whatever it is seven years later here we're still uh trudging along, um, generated reasonable returns, got a good research following, and just sort of continuing to slowly build uh, a business around what we call a real asset portfolio that is uh, geographically diverse. We invest globally, except for China, Russia, and India. Uh, We invest across sort of different company sizes, everything from, you know, smaller junior miners uh, to, you know, major international oil and natural gas companies. Um, And it's a, it's an interesting portfolio because we're mixing energy materials and industrials. And that usually, at least in my experience, I've found people who are focused on one or the other energy or materials Mm -hmm. um, and uh, mixing the two uh, along with industrials just sort of creates a, a unique portfolio that covers the entire foundation of the the sort of modern economy.
0: When you went to fundraise for 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 massive, yeah. what was what was that process like cuz again you said 2016 and yeah. I don't want to make this podcast like about macro calls and things like that, but one thing I will say is I bet you probably sit back and go I'm finally investing with some wind at my back not wind in my face
1: um hmm. i didn't really feel like that until about 2000 actually um i felt like the wind was blowing against me for a lot of that time but uh yeah i mean fundraising fundraising is hard it was hard it is hard it remains a challenge um it's it's easy with people, individuals. My favorite investors are family offices and former hedge fund managers. Um, and ideally small family offices where you're literally just talking to the decision maker. Um, and you can sort of share your enthusiasm with them and they can share their enthusiasm back with you. Mm-hmm. And there can be a great conversation about like what you're learning and what they know and their experiences and how it impacts uh, you know the businesses you're in. Um, our, our, the family office that seeded us runs a, a textile business. That's the largest consumer of cotton in the United States. So they know a lot about say softs and agricultural commodities and things of that nature. So I learn a lot from them and they learn from me. And, you know, those are my favorite investors and they're the easiest people to fundraise from, um, institutional fundraising is hard. Um, you can get a lot of individual buy-in but getting institutional buy-in is a whole other ballgame what i'd say at the moment is we've got a lot of interest especially with our our sort of contrarian i mean it's not really contrarian anymore it was contrarian when we first rolled it out in 2000 i think this sort of contra esg idea which is to say okay the science behind climate change is sound in our opinion uh what's not sound uh, or what there is room for a lot of discussion on is how you address that problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay? And how you address that problem uh, is complicated. It's nuanced. It's contextual. Um, and ESG sort of capital ESG BlackRock style is not contextual. It's not nuanced. It's not sophisticated. It's just sort of this blanket uh, uh, divestment approach to things. And, admittedly if i had nine trillion dollars or whatever they've got under management i'm not really sure what i would do um (laughs) but uh i don't have that problem and that i actually view that as a problem that's just too much money um to do anything interesting with uh at at least at a very high level right um so we get a lot of interest now with this sort of contrarian approach which is sort of Find the companies that are proactive and forward-looking in spaces that produce uh, products that maybe have carbon emissions, uh, or maybe are part of a solution or part of the problem, uh, but are are working to address it. You know, we still need steel, we still need cement, we still need chemicals. Those guys just need to figure out a different way of doing it. Um, I still believe, uh, and this is really contrarian or. or or, or challenging idea when I, I tried it out there, I still believe that the most important, absolute most important commodity to transitioning to a low-carbon economy is oil and natural gas.
0: Mm-hmm. And the reason
1: they are the most important component of the transition is because in order to transition, the world's economy needs to hump. It is not cheap to transition. It uh, is It is expensive. If it's expensive, the economy needs to be working. Mm-hmm. Right now, for better or worse, eighty-three-ish, eighty-four percent of our primary energy comes from carbon—oil, uh, natural gas, coal, etc. Um, you want to transition? We need money. Uh, we need money. We need the economy to work. So, you know, we need oil and natural gas. Um, the
0: way I was thinking, the, the 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 way I was thinking about that transition. When I was listening to the podcast with Kevin Moore, um, is it's like if you were this carnivore, um, you know, slash omnivore, uh, you know, society, and you lived on, you know, let's say cows, slaughtering slaughtering cows and having the beef for your whole family, and you went ahead and said, okay, we're going to transition from being, you know, omnivore diet, uh, carnivore diet, to strictly plants, and we're Mm. just going to live off the land. But you make that commitment and you make that switch before, you know, digging the soil, cultivating the soil, planting the seeds. And there's that point in time, there's that chasm where people will die because you did not plan ahead and actually like, literally and figuratively plant the seed so that you could make that transition swiftly.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's a great analogy and it, um, it gets at something we've been saying recently, which is, is the solutions proposed are, are a bit of a sequencing error. Yes. Right. You, you need to. And, and I mean, it, it, it's complicated. It can't be sequenced top down. It's always going to be messy. And so it's not going to be nice and neat. And we understand that. Um, but, you know, to the degree that you don't decarbonize downstream of energy use first, you can't decarbonize upstream. Um, yep. And, and uh, there's just so many uses for oil and natural gas that are underappreciated. I think for some reason, by the broader sort of community that we live in, uh, that make it really hard to to do without sort of first decarbonizing that end use. Um, and of course, you also need to recognize that decarbonizing that end use is not some, you know, necessarily environmentally pretty thing either, right? Like, I don't know, not many people have been to a copper mine, okay, but a copper mine is not. You know, it's not environmentally friendly. Um, It's just it's just the way it is. Um, uh, I don't know if it's worse than or, you know, equivalencies with oil and natural gas, I think, are kind of silly. But like, it's it's not environmentally friendly. Um, So
0: have you (laughs) read the book Boom, Bust, Boom on Copper? I know you've got an extensive library back there. Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah, that's a great book for anybody listening that wants to understand the environmental consequences. Yeah. Like yeah. It's, it's, this, it's this guy's view. He lives in Arizona and yep. Arizona is a huge copper mining Mecca. And it the book opens up where he's planting a garden in his backyard. And all of a sudden, you know, his daughter and him eat some of the vegetables from the garden. They get sick and there's just a bunch of like lead and arsenic Yeah. And their soil due to the the runoff from the copper mine. Yeah. Um, And
1: then there was a book this year that was good. um, Cobalt red.
0: Oh, I got to get that.
1: uh, Which is just about cobalt mining in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And, uh, you know, in the DRC, most of that mining is is there's a quote unquote artisanal, which sounds really nice. Right. It It sounds sounds very
0: hipster. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like uh, yeah, a hipster, a, a Brooklyn coffee shop. I run an artisanal coffee and chocolate shop in um, in in Brooklyn, um, but but it's not nuts, you know. It, it's basically it's basically the poorest of the poor digging up cobalt by hand. Fifty mm-hmm. percent um, of the world's cobalt comes out of the DRC, and his estimate. You know, you you take it with a grain of salt, right? Uh, his estimate is that 70% of that cobalt, uh, at some time, way, shape, or form, touched child labor. And you're sort of like, okay, well,
0: yeah,
1: really, is not the greenest thing. I mean, greenest or socially most responsible. You know, there, it's you know, there are trade-offs to all these things. We need to recognize them um, mm-hmm. and and sort of try and manage those trade-offs.
0: Yeah. And, you know, speaking of trade-offs, we can dive right into the critical raw materials value chain, which, again, almost like a circular reference error where if you want this green future, you need to dig for things like copper, nickel, cobalt, you mentioned, lithium, graphite. But the way you dig for them is using diesel trucks, heavy equipment, requires oil, requires gas, requires, you know, all this infrastructure. Um, And so when you look at the critical raw materials value chain, we'll call it, there's, there's so many metals that it can become overwhelming, right? So for me, when I started diving into the metals and mining space, I chose copper just because copper to me is like Python for programming languages. It's 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 kind of easy to wrap your head around. Like the language kind of makes sense. The supply and demand is there. There's a lot of resources. It's a big market, um, but there's so many. And it's hard to delineate which ones are A, have the highest torque, for future price appreciation, and then B, have kind of the highest asymmetry where you know, you could buy a copper mine and it gets you this, you know, trading at maybe half nav, but then there's this cobalt mine, it's trading at a quarter nav, and then trying to figure out how to rank all those. And so if we could just spend really a lot of time diving into this value chain and how you view it from a massive point of view where you've got all these materials, how do you even freaking start to assess all this so and i know it's a hard question
1: <laughs> yeah um well so just as an aside i started with copper tail um okay cool uh That's good to know uh, for some reason it was the first metal i looked at uh when i i first looked at a mining firm um the first mining firm i ever looked at was freeport McMoran. yep uh so um it was a case study in my master's thesis, uh, their project in um, Papua New Guinea. So, um, but I guess where I would start, you know, we don't necessarily start thematically top down. Sometimes we start bottom up. Um, I think it's a difficult question in part to answer because it sort of depends on if you have a really strict or or structured process that is top down. Um, I don't really have, nor does massive capital really have a commodity first approach, right? So we don't invest in commodities. We invest in companies that happen to produce commodities. Hmm. And so oftentimes I don't necessarily get excited about, uh, say, a commodity, but I will get excited about a company. Now, I mean, there are exceptions, right? I mean, like the macro setup for copper seems great to me and it does excite me. At the same time i gotta say i really struggled to find any interesting copper investments
0: hmm.
1: so, so i don't get i don't get all that excited because i got to make some money in the end and that that's really what i get excited about um but i think that starting with copper in some regards starting with copper is actually hard because it's it's got so many uses and it's so big i almost would Tell people to start with some other more niche metal hmm. um the one that for some reason comes to mind with to me today is something like tin right where yeah. you can sort of wrap your hands around and probably write down on a piece of paper all the major tin mines in the world like it's not going to be a long list in the grand scheme of things um copper the list probably goes on forever and you're going to miss a lot so yeah. um tin is probably easier uh and as opposed to say even more niche metals. One of the problems as you go even nichier, uh, let's say to rare earth metals or something like that, um, you know, stuff starts to move off of publicly traded markets and into contracted markets. And hmm. so you get this problem with something like uranium, right? Where you look at uranium and it's highly opaque, what is going on in the supply and demand market. And it's highly opaque because I mean, A, there's sort of like national security stuff going on, on around that, but uh, it's also just this contracted market that's extremely opaque and it's really hard to evaluate. Um, so when I'm, we start thinking about commodities though, uh, and that actually brings it back to sort of one of the things we start thinking about when we think about a commodity, which is we think about it, um, you know, prices uh, are built from both fundamentals, supply and demand, Mm -hmm. And then there's a sentiment layer on top with all these sort of other issues. And it's not just going to be sentiment. There's other stuff going on that isn't sentiment. But for the point of discussion, let's just call it sentiment. And so you look at uh, something like gold, not a critical metal in our conversation here, but but you look at something like gold. um, I would say gold is probably one of the harder metals to wrap your hands around. And I'd say it's one of the harder metals because that supply-demand component uh, represents, I don't know what portion of the price stack, let's call it, but the sentiment portion represents a massive component. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, uh, the stocks, which are in essence you know some sort of weird derivative almost of the commodity in many respects, uh, are themselves intensely sentiment driven. Copper, on the other hand, is intensely tied to the economy. Um, and so the fundamental side of it Plays a larger role in determining its price, and I at least like to try and lean into uh, the commodities where I think the economic side of things uh, tends to be more telling than the sentiment side because it's easier. Um, going back to your question, though, I guess more the the critical mineral supply chain, where you know where do you look? Um, the contrarian in me, and I think it's really important, especially with a lot of resources is to understand that uh, the cyclicality know, everything returns, if you will, it's mean reverting in some way. Um, now the time periods can be extremely long and that, that means you have to think about the investments slightly differently than just buying at the low and holding until it's high. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, going contrarian to start. So that, which is really popular, I tend to stay away from that, which is bombed out and out of favor. I'll start to look at that makes copper really complicated right now. It's just about um, to say it's, yeah. um, and then, uh, I would also say, you know, where there are bottlenecks, whether they be politically created or not tends to be interesting. So again, you look at something like rare earths, uh, China represents in some some regards a bottleneck, uh, but what also but but that bottleneck has sort of uh, repercussions that create other bottlenecks. So if you want to get rare earths ex China, you need to find someone who a- has access to processing that's ex China. Yep. So that leads me at least when when we started looking at rare earths to say okay, who is the rare earth miner? Uh, or developer who's building a project who also has what seems like a reasonable plan or reasonable path to that processing capability what's also important is to dig into sort of the use cases because there's a lot more nuance in metals and mining less so with copper per se but definitely with the let's call it electricity and battery metals yeah um, there are different kinds of lithium There are heavy rare earths and there are light rare earths. And light rare earths, to be perfectly frank, there's, you know, there are some minor, there's plenty of mining of light rare earth metals. Uh, There's not a lot of ex-China processing, but between Mountain Pass and Linus, they produce a reasonable amount of light rare earth metals to feed into a Western supply chain. Uh, But heavy rare earths are a real problem. Um, And that's because geologically, the most productive heavy rare earth uh, deposits are in Vietnam and China. Uh, So who's got heavy rare earths? Um, And so drilling down into the details and the specifics of the individual commodities is quite important. Um, I've got this book that always sits sort of on my desk. I mean, now literally on my desk, uh, but it's called Understanding Non-Ferrous Metals, Properties, Production and Use um by guy yeah, that sounds in, like a sleeper yeah yeah <laughs> um, do you you cannot start at the beginning and read to the end but what's great about it is the guy has gone through I don't know he's gone through freaking every metal I can think of I've never never come up short yep. um and uh, you know he talks about the properties minerals and mining production use history and then he gives a bibliography
0: where that's fantastic by um, that
1: so you know the details are really important
0: um, so that was an awesome kind of primer for, for, for kind of more of these, more of these discussions. And, um, you know, we can, we can touch on kind of copper maybe, maybe we use copper as kind of this base level for how you analyze the commodity specifically, or, um, or the, co- the companies that produce the co- commodities specifically, because I do like that distinction and I want to make sure that I respect that distinction that you guys make it massive. So let's take copper, right. The we'll, we'll 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 start with kind of the macro view because i do want to get your take on that like i think what's going on in copper is very weird right now um if you assume that there's going to be this recession i don't know why copper is trading so resiliently if you think china is going to collapse with with demand especially from real estate i don't know why you know the price is still robust um you have then the competing headline that inventories are at some of the lowest levels ever. And then you've got the great electrification and the green transition, which is going to be this huge demand. And, um, and so like, that's all to say there's so many competing headlines with copper right now. How do you decide, like, how do you decipher that? And, 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 and and maybe it's as simple as just taking a step back and just saying, like, I'm I'm just going to wait to see what the, you know, where the market tips its cap.
1: Yeah. So, um, I guess what I would say is the work that we've done, and the work that you know, a couple of the big banks have done, like Goldman Sachs and whatnot. The uh, the changing nature. So, so we've got the supply and demand side. Okay, we'll, we'll back up one one level. Okay. Yeah. The supply side is always easier to deal with. I like the supply side. It's much easier. <laughs> um, you know, look, we're just not finding copper deposits. Uh, and when we are finding copper deposits, uh, a lot of them are quite hard. So you look at something like Soul Gold, for example, which has a, a great, a supposedly great mm-hmm. copper deposit. Well, it's in Ecuador. Ecuador doesn't scare me too much, but, you know, it's not without its issues. Right. Um, And then you look a little deeper and it's this giant block cave mine, which makes it really hard to to, the the viability of building a block cave mine in Ecuador there. It's just very challenging. It's very difficult Hmm. uh, to accomplish. So the deposits are further out into the wilderness they're getting harder to find they're getting harder i often think about there as being a spectrum the, these two sort of competing spectrums in metals and mining um on one side or one line you have sort of like you need uh heavy logistics and light lo- and light logistics so diamond mine you just put the diamonds in a pelican case you put the pelican case on a helicopter and you fly out um on the other hand you have iron ore in australia where they're just like they built a freaking train to take to take the iron ore to the the uh and then you have geological complication where again diamonds very complicated geology iron ore in the case of australia again it's just like a giant red sand pit copper used to sort of sit in the middle Mm -hmm. but now what's happening is the geological complication is increasing and the infrastructure necessary is increasing because the demand volume has grown so significantly and right. has the potential in the future to grow so significantly. Um, so the supply picture uh, is quite negative. Um, and then to your point, that inventory, which is sort of that that spare capacity almost that allows uh, demand to grow while, in, while supply has been tight, uh, has shrunk so much. And the work people have done that I've seen recently suggests that even in a modest recession, that spare copper has shrunk so much uh, that you're still going to end up with a deficit at the end of this year, for example. Yeah. Um. And then people, you know, often talk about, and you mentioned, for example, real estate in China and and property development as having been a large source of copper demand over the last ten years, and it certainly has been. All of the incremental copper demand over the last 10 years has come out of China. And a lot of it has been the property sector. Uh, but last year, for example, despite the fact that the property sector took a, a dive, uh, the, gr- the growth in green demand, green sort of copper uses, uh, completely outweighed it. Right. And so you still ended up in a deficit. And what we sort of see in the case of copper... Uh, is it it looks like what, you know, we generally haven't talked about the demand side for a lot of the critical green metals because it's been a wait-and-see story. Yep. But what's happened quite quickly, it seems like over the last two years, in part because of industrial policies out of various governments, is that wait-and-see story is increasingly becoming a right-here-and-right-now story. Correct. And so copper next year, green demand for copper this year we expect it to be something like seven to eight percent of global copper demand, and next year it looks like it's probably going to be ten or eleven percent. Um, so that that draw, uh, which was you know again wait and see, is now very much here. Hmm. So I think copper continues to hold up just because of that that combination of realities, uh, despite the fact that yeah in a recession demand will fall, um, but governments have primed it uh the demand so much that it's probably not going to fall that much
0: yeah i mean you look at australia i think i saw it just today from mining.com and you know somebody can fact check me on this um for the first time i think ev sales eclipsed uh internal combustion sales in australia as like a as like a share um i don't know if that was like the first half of the year or something but uh, i'll have to go look that up but
1: you know the demand is is huge. I, I think the demand for EVs is going to slow a little bit here this mm-hmm. year with a recession. But again, it's still it's the the material intensity of all of the green stuff. Let's just say that we're doing is so much greater than people recognize and understand uh, that it's it's quite literally uh, changing sort of consumption patterns.
0: Mm-hmm. And then so with that overlay if we dive into the companies that produce the copper, walk us through soup to nuts. And you can you can use an example from the past, you don't have to use anything in your portfolio, but soup to nuts, how do you analyze that copper miner? And then how do you, you know, again, because like copper, like you said, there's thousands of copper companies. Um, and if you include stuff on like the OTC market, it's like <laughs> you could spend your entire lifetime going through. So then how do you decide, okay, this cut, like I prefer this one over this one, and then what what's inside that criteria?
1: Yeah. Um, so sustainability, feasibility, viability, okay. We'll start at the, actually it should be viability, feasibility, sustainability. Uh, viability is a question of sort of mining economics. Okay. So defining and demonstrating that there is a way to extract value uh, from an ore body. Okay. So, so it, it people get confused. I, I think in, in regards to mining copper in the ground, doesn't have a value. It's not, or, or, or to to be more specific, it doesn't have a value like cash in the bank, right? Copper has a value in production or in being produced. the yep. Mines don't have value outside of their operation. Operations are how you create value. And so when you think about a mine and you think about valuing a mining firm, you have to focus on that operational component. And so there's viability, which again, is a question of mining economics. So defining and demonstrating the way to extract value. So that is, uh, you know, we'll go back to this whole gold example. That is, this deposit has to be mined with a block cave. And it has to produce a certain grade of ore. At a certain rate over a certain period of time, um, you know, in many regards, uh, as an investor, you're asking the sort of following question of management: um, Have you guys figured out what is the optimal economic rate of production that maximizes the life of the mine? while simultaneously maximizing the profitability of the mine as expressed Correct. sort of in MPV. And so it's this weird min max equation. okay so first the question is viability and that's all about sort of the economics of uh, how you go about mining the ore. Then you have the sort of feasibility, which is the question of can you build this thing? And that's a really important question and a lot that's that's where things frankly, often just go off the rails and a rock. Mm-hmm. And so you look at something like uh, uh, the OT mine in Mongolia, um, which Rio Tinto now owns, but previously was Turquoise Hill slash Rio Tinto. Um, you know, has a great big copper deposit. Having to be a block cave mine in Mongolia, and man, has it proven really hard to get that thing up and running. It has been continuous sort of Techno feasibility issues in building the mine. So, after viability, it's a question of whether it can be built, uh, and then you have sustainability. And sustainability is a question of business economics. Basically, can you continuously operate this asset? Mines require a continuous injection of capital, um, and so you know it's it's those three questions, and you need to sort of put a checkbox next to each of those questions um before you can invest. And so that's that's sort of the framework we start with viability, feasibility, sustainability.
0: And Uh, so then and just you know just this is kind of how I'm envisioning it. You you have kind of these three, you know, these three stools to this to this idea. And then is it you go one by one and say, you know, okay, the viability for copper miner A is four out of five, B is three out of five, and then C is kind of two out of five. And then when you go to feasibility, you know, maybe copper mine B has a five out of five feasibility. Whereas the first one only has like three or two out of five. And then you got to decide like, okay, like what matters more? Like this one is more viable in terms of MPV, but the odds of it being feasible play into, you know, your probability or whatever discount rate you assign to, to the, to those future cash flows.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's roughly spot on how it works. Um, at, at, at least for us now, I mean, there is, um, If you go earlier so so a lot of that discussion is is sort of after a geological deposit has been discovered right right um now you can go earlier uh and at times depending on what we're doing we think about going earlier and so gold for example right now um our our usual sweet spot is that development where the questions are viability feasibility uh, and sustainability. But right now with, say, gold, uh, we think it probably pays to maybe go a little earlier to some of the more geological exploration side of things, just because with inflation labor costs, et cetera, development has gotten quite as is, is, is gotten hard for some people. Some people are pulling it off. Well, other people are are really blundering. Um, and, and there the questions become slightly different uh, or They're still the same questions, but you just, your prognostication, they're much further into the future, uh, and the sentiment variable, and thus the commodity sort of movement actually becomes more important. Uh, So Mm -hmm. if you're very early in a geological play, um, I would tend to 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 want to really do that when the sentiment is running in favor of the commodity, because they're going to produce drill results, and that's going to be the news upon which people are going to tell themselves a story, write a narrative about what the future viability, feasibility, and sustainability of the asset is. Um, but it's so far in the future that it's you know it, it's Elon Musk telling you that uh, he's going to build a robot, whatever that drives your car and, and things like that. So. Um,
0: So if we look at copper, where, where, where along that, you know, we can call it, you know, from, from junior explorer to kind of senior producer, where, where are you guys falling along that spectrum now?
1: Right now we are falling into a bit of a barbell. Okay. Okay. And, uh, the barbell is, uh, some producers, um, who we think uh, we're buying relatively cheap and with strong dividends who have growth potential ahead of them. Um, and the growth potential in terms of pounds of copper, uh, is critical in our opinion, because we don't want to just be you know, we don't have, a, I, I don't have a theoretical issue with betting on commodity prices. Like if you just want to bet on commodity, but if I'm gonna just bet on commodity prices, I'm gonna do a futures market and do yeah, it. Yeah, just buy the to. I'm not gonna sort of uh, mess it up with this operational component in the middle. Um, so I'm looking for a couple of, I've got a couple of copper miners uh, in mind, uh, one of which we're in the process of entering right now. So I'm not gonna name it, uh, mm-hmm. but who looks like they have uh, the potential via both brownfield and greenfield exploration to grow their production. Um, on the other end of that barbell, we uh, are looking at and uh, considering investments in a couple of earlier geological type plays that we believe are past the initial, well, where we believe uh, in a somewhat odd fashion, we actually are going to end up paying up a little bit. for the the name, despite the fact that they're so early. Um, There are so few fantastic tier one copper deposits out there uh, that a lot of the early names, despite the fact that you're probably still 10 years out from a mine, um, you've got to pay up for a little bit. And uh, there, what becomes most critical is who you're partnering with. Um, I, I think who you're partnering with is always critical, but that particular spot, early mining with copper, um, you better really like the team you're getting in bed with.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, that you almost read my mind in terms of Segway is like red flags and green flags for a lot of these um, developers, early developers, or even, even even the explorers, because if you're new to the copper mining space or new to the mining space in general, there's a tendency for a lot of these management teams to be very promotional. And they say, oh, we just drilled at X meters and it's X percent grade. And this is the next best mega copper deposit in the world. And if you're new, you see the first headline, you're like, oh my gosh, that's a big deal. And then a week later, every single miner <laughs> has the same headline It starts to kind of dilute itself. Drill
1: results are very hard to interpret. Yes. Either drill results and grade are yep. highly contextual. Like it, I know, like it sounds, it sounds, uh, well, I don't know, maybe it doesn't sound silly, but it's highly contextual. I mean, let's say, you, you know, someone comes along and says, I just drilled, uh, 10 meters. Uh, I just had a, a drill result, uh, where, uh, 50 meters underground. So very shallow.
0: Yes,
1: um, and, uh, we've intersected, uh, 10 meters of 1% copper. And you're like, oh, that sounds interesting. And then the guy next door says, well, I did the exact same thing, except I'm only ten meters underground. Well, you know, look, uh, going back to copper in the ground has no value. Only in its, you know, sort of uh, digging it up does it have value. Well, quite clearly, ten meters underground. Well, that's really easy to get out of the
0: ground. Yeah, that's the easiest.
1: Um, But you know, you've got to think again. You got to think forward in understanding and contextualizing that. and then, of course, you know, the the actual processing uh, results in grade becoming a, a even more difficult to analyze. You take uh, rare earth metals in particular, processing them is quite hard. Um, and so you may run across a rare earth miner who has very high grades, but maybe because of something to do with the processing, the actual results of what you know gets spit out the other end of the processing facility isn't that much... Is, isn't that much of whatever rare earth metal you're looking for versus someone else who has a lower grade, but maybe it's easier to process. Mm. So, you know, there's all this context that you have to think through um, and it requires a lot of sort of sitting back and, and almost imagination, you got know, to sit back, you got to plan it out into the future. Um, and then you've got to sort of tear down what you planned out. Where where is it wrong? Why is it wrong? And then rebuild it again, tear it down again, back and forth, back and forth, uh, until you come up with you know a, a spread of possible futures that you think represent um, the most likely realities.
0: So, what are the biggest red flags when studying these 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 mining companies? And you can even glean from maybe some mistakes you made in the past when you were cutting your teeth in in these investments.
1: Um. Well, so don't fall in love with the assets. Mm-hmm. Um, that one got me uh, badly with Freeport Mac Moran when I made my first sort of natural resources investment. I just thought the, the assets were so cool. Um, <laughs> but again, it's not really necessarily about the assets, it's about how you monetize the assets. So having a lot of really cool big trucks is cool and fun, but not if money's on the line um, necessarily, right? Uh, so, so there, that's a that's a big one. Um, I myself don't usually do anything with first time management teams. So unless I can look at your track record, yeah, um, I yeah I tend to avoid uh, management teams that are first time. Um, I also tend to avoid uh, geologists who are building a mine. Um, Why is that? Each stage of a mine is kind of, kind of requires a different management team almost. Uh, finding a deposit requires geologists, an exploration geologists. Um, building a, a mine requires engineers. Um, operating a mining company uh, with assets globally requires, uh, you know, requires political risk management acumen and things like that. All, finding all of these things in one person, it doesn't happen very often. You, you yeah. know, someone like Mark Bristow, for example, at Barrick, he's got it all, right? Okay, fine. Um, but uh, other, others don't. Um, and then you've got to ask, do they have any experience? Like, let's say someone, will go with copper. Uh, let's say someone does have copper experience, but all of their copper experience is big open pits in the United States. And now they've gone down to Ecuador and are trying to build a block cave mine in the middle of the jungle, just to continue with, with our soul gold example. Maybe it works, um, but you know the risks are really high, um, and uh, you just made it even harder because you've got no experience doing whatever it is you're about to attempt to do. Um, so a lot of focus on management track record um, and and things of that nature. I also like to think about it, management teams in, ter- in terms of sort of like the families. Um, you know, you've got Ross Beattie, you've got the Lundines, you've got Robert Friedland, you've got all of these these serial successful names. Um, what, you know, wh- wh- who's running this or that company and where do they come from? It's kind of like, you know, hedge funds, it's, you know, like you've got Tiger Cub. Oh, it's just and things like that spin outs from point 72 and Steve Cohen and and this and that I think about it, I I often think about it in those terms. And so I, I like management teams with those pedigrees because they're networks that they can then tap into. Um, so those are a couple of the things, um, in terms of, uh, the political risk one is a hard one to do diligence. But political risk management skill is obviously critical. And, and sometimes people ask me what that means. Uh, the example I give is, is lobbying in DC. Okay, Lobbying in DC is political risk management. So, so the question is, can your management team do that? Um, due diligence in that is really hard. We've written a paper with some questions that, that we like to ask. Um, it's on our website somewhere, but uh, I think that's important. And I think it becomes increasingly important as we go along uh, over the next, say, decade and what seems to be a trend towards not only increased uh, industrial policy out of governments shaping and framing the way economies are evolving in these sectors, um, but also this sort of geopolitical divide that's opening up between, let's call it the West and China Russia. Um, you know, those skills become ever more important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned kind of this divide between the East and the West and there was the uh, OECD paper about the critical raw materials. And I just, I read this one part about these export restrictions and this thought popped into my mind. I'm like, this is metallic nationalism mm-hmm. that's happening. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be impossible to, understand the ramifications of that all across the supply chain. And so when you talk about political risk, how much of that goes into it, whether that's metallic nationalism, but whether it's also something, and this kind of gets into the bear thesis of some of these things is something like an egregious windfall profits tax, where you see something like maybe a Canada or maybe another country's like, you know what you guys are making record things. Like, like let's say copper goes to five, $7 a pound. What's to stop these governments from saying, hey, you know, instead of that 25, 30% windfall tax, it's gonna be 60, 70%. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, I I, I would tend to agree with you. I, I don't see anything um, I don't think I, I don't see anything stopping a lot of governments from doing that. Uh, except I do, and this is maybe just a hope. This is probably just a hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope that as this process of decarbonization continues to evolve, and and let's put aside decarbonization. Actually, Let, let's just when y- you had tweeted and asked some of your followers to to sort of voice some questions, and I was looking at a couple of them, and someone said something along the lines of, um, "When are we going to get over all this uh, renewable nonsense? It's uh, it, it's natural gas and oil, and that's what's going to work, and and the rest of this is just nonsense." Um, we don't need to worry about climate change per se to recognize that we still need investments in these things Mm -hmm. and that the demand on them is going to increase, not decrease. Material intensity of advanced technologies is high and it grows. Um, It it doesn't seem to shrink, it it grows. Uh, And more importantly, even if wind and solar isn't the answer, oil and natural gas are probably not the answer either right and n- not because they aren't good sources of energy uh but because progress needs to occur and you know things will evolve and maybe it's fusion and who knows what fusion means um maybe yeah. it's something else but But either way, there's a continuous process of evolution and progress going forward. And yesterday's energy sources are not going to be tomorrow's energy sources. They may be a part of it, but they're not going to be the entirety of it. And so my hope is that as we continue to evolve the energy system, um, whether that's electrification for climate change or just because we need to continue to evolve, Um, there is an increasing recognition of the importance of materials. We've had this period of time over the last 20 years or so where technology has advanced really quickly. Um, Although I guess the advance of technology, that's a bit of a relative statement. I probably can't make it, but uh, we'll put that aside. Technology has advanced um, uh, and there just hasn't been a focus on some of these critical inputs. But the reality is that Facebook doesn't exist without copper and silicon and all, all sorts of other things. And and nor do any of the other advanced technologies. And so uh they are uh critical however we slice it and dice it, and politicians hopefully come to recognize uh some of that over time, although as said, that's just a hope.
0: Yeah, but you I think I think you bring up a broader, more important point where People tend to miss the forest through through the trees when they think of renewables because you have this. I I almost view renewables more as like the icing on the cake, where the fundamental or foundational growth story is the massive, you know, billions and billions of people that will rise from poverty into the middle class. And, you know, none of this, none of this is my own thinking. My, you know, my good friend Harris Copperman has kind of said this before. It's like there's billions of people in India that when their incomes rise, they're gonna want all the amenities we have. And all of that requires things like copper, nickel, graphite, like like the plumbing in your house, all the electric in your house, it's all copper, your phones, it's all copper. Um, and just having that base level of growth is kind of one part. And then the other part is, I think people focus too much on kind of the demand story where there's this kind of causal relationship where, like George Soros says, it's not how much you make or, much you make or lose, but how much you lose when you're wrong and you know make when you're right. And I think in terms of copper, it's not necessarily how much demand grows or shrinks. It's how much demand grows or shrinks in relation to what supply is doing. Yes. If supply, like if if demand drops by 5%, but supply drops by 6%, that's still a bullish copper reality. And I yeah. think a lot of people miss that when they say, oh, China's bombed out. It's like, China may be bombed out, but have you looked at the supply? And like maybe that alone balances the market.
1: Yeah, no, I I would tend to agree with you. I mean, the uh, you can't just take into account one side of the story. Mm -hmm. Uh, One side of the story is, you know, it's always more fun to talk one side of the story at any given time. One side is more interesting than the other, Um, but you got to talk both sides. Um, So I, I would tend to agree with you on that. I'd also this is a bit more philosophical, I guess, but I would say that um, the issues that are are pressing uh, you know, for us today uh, may or may not be the issues in the future, mm-hmm. um, but what one has to understand is that we're only dealing with sort of so-called wicked problems these days, which are to say these problems that don't have solutions per se, they have better and worse outcomes that are not endpoints in and of themselves, Hmm. meaning they themselves are a new state at which there is a new problem, rather than, you know, we've solved the problem and now we don't need to think about it at all. Yep, Uh, Everything in energy and materials is of that nature. It's always constantly evolving. um, And so we always need to be thinking forward. um, And to your point, maybe copper demand uh, due to wind turbines and solar panels and whatnot and EVs, uh, doesn't grow uh but uh the economy is humming and india everyone in india wants a house now or something
0: um, mm-hmm.
1: so i want to shift the possibility that india could be another china yeah in terms of, of commodity man it's not impossible um yeah, so.
0: yeah. i want to shift to valuation and how you value these 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 mining plays um mm-hmm. and there was there was a one of one of those questions when I when I tweeted out, you know, hey, I'm getting getting you on the podcast. What do you want to know? Someone tweeted, and I think this is a great question. If we can break this down, yeah. is how you value copper mining projects or, or producers on a copper per pound price, basically backing into a copper price based on what the company's market cap is and its cash flows and things like that. I want to use an example to walk through yeah. that? um i think that would be awesome
1: yeah um okay so uh very basic discount cash flow model okay uh commodity production the volume times the sale price get your revenue line you have uh An EBIT margin, again, we're going to make it really simple because we're talking about it. Um, Mm -hmm. And you can add, one can envision how they add complication all the way through. Uh, You have an EBIT margin assumption, which gets you to your EBIT. Uh, Then you've got your taxes that you take out. Uh, Then you add in your depreciation. And again, you can make an assumption about sort of depreciation as a percentage of revenue or however you want to think about it then you've got your capex that you subtract out and your working cap you subtract out. And let's say we do it for three years forward looking, uh, and then we'll just drop the rest of it for simplicity's sake into this terminal value, okay? That model is, in essence, one giant long equation. And at the end, it spits out your per share value. We, you know, uh, we take the discount cash flows, we add in the terminal value, we get our enterprise, we subtract the debt, and then we divide it all by uh, the number of shares. Okay. Using Now, this is the way we do it. I don't know how everybody else does it. I can always speak for myself.
0: Okay.
1: Um, yep. Using Excel, because that's just a giant long equation, you can say, actually, I'm not interested in solving for the per share value. I'm interested in solving for the commodity price that makes this giant long equation work. Mm. And so that's what we do. And you can do it at any different level. And and sometimes we do it at other different levels just to see what the answer spits out. Um, Or you know, let's say you don't do it with a terminal value. Let's say you do it with a multiple. Well, you could do it, and we often do this, where we put in all our assumptions and we actually solve for the multiple that makes the equation sort of work. Mm. And so you can back into all sorts of different Underlying assumptions in other people's analysis using a simplistic model, as long as you have a couple of the assumptions that they're they're making. Um, so that's that's how we do it. Uh I find that to be a useful way of just running through companies looking at the different things that people that, that might be baked into prices. Um, and I do it at all different levels, solve for the revenue sometimes, sometimes I'll solve for commodity price. What's nice about solving for commodity price is you often have a good production profile. Mining firms are pretty transparent with the expected production over the next couple of years. And so you can often back into what is an interesting uh, commodity price assumption built into it. Now, admittedly, the result of this, and I'm sure someone could come up with some way of addressing this, but admittedly part of the challenge is you only get one commodity price each year if you will. let's say you do this annually. you only the, the you're solving an equation with one variable it spits out one variable is what it is. Um, and that's obviously not particularly realistic but you know we're always looking for uh, accuracy, not precision hmm. okay I, I don't care if I am in the top right or bottom right of the strike zone I just want to be in the strike zone and so admittedly, again, spitting out one commodity price baked into the existing share price based on this model uh, may lack the precision that some people would like, but I'd argue that the additional precision probably doesn't yield you any real value. So so that's the way we do it. Um, sure, there are other ways of doing it, uh, but but that's, that's the somewhat complicated way we do it.
0: And so then when you go to like rank these things or you mentioned in copper, like you're excited about copper, but you're not finding a lot of value in that. Is it is it as simple as, you know, again, I'm I'm being very simplistic. Is it as simple as when you're modeling these copper producers, they're coming out at, you know, let's say like what spot is now, which is like four ten or you know, four thirty, where that value that it spits out is closer to spot than say you would want, and that's why it's not as attractive.
1: Yeah, it's it's all a question of sort of risk adjusted sort of return expectations and um i just see a lot of you know pretty reasonably valued copper producers at the moment um and it's uh you know if 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 you're pretty reasonably valued and you don't have a new mine you're turning on uh or you know something that you're doing that's going to increase margin you know then again i'm just sort of betting on the copper price going up and you know, as I think is is probably clear from this conversation, I do think copper prices are going to go up, but that's a uh, it's probably a strong opinion loosely held mm-hmm. um as I think all my opinions about sort of commodity prices are. I feel good about directionality. I don't really feel good about sort of price outcome um, mm. in in my my thought process. Uh, so.
0: What about for exploring companies that don't have any production and you have to go on some sort of net present value calculation, but there are red flags there where <laughs> I think I read a study where it's like 60% of these pre-feasibility studies or feasibility studies, the costs are understated as to what the end product might be. And and there's there's a host of you know inputs that go in and just even the difference between let's say an 8% MPV versus a 10% MPV. How do you then go and value that? Do you guys just use like a standard 10% discount rate or like how how has that evolved over time?
1: We build, well, so with mining firms, we will run, uh, we always run 8% um, that model just because everyone seems to run it. And so I am curious what the sort of everyone answer is, if you will. Yeah. Um, I don't really know where that 8% comes from, to be honest with you. Neither do and, I. The, and then like gold miners, when they're operating, they run at 5%. I, I don't really know where that comes from. That
0: doesn't seem like an accurate reflection of their cost of capital.
1: Uh, uh, no, I mean, maybe maybe it is for Barrick, right? You know, like, I don't yeah. know what Barrick borrows at, but yeah, junior gold miner with a single asset in like West That's Africa.
0: It's like 15%, 15, 20%. Yeah.
1: There's no way you're borrowing money at 5%. No.
0: Um,
1: So, uh, we also tend to run a WAC calculated example. Um, And then the one that I think is most relevant uh, is we build a a discount rate stack where we, we, you know, we look at the country, we look at comparables, who's borrowing what money where, uh, what is some of the political you know, are there political issues? Where's the sovereign debt trading? We basically build up to what we think a pro an appropriate discount rate is based on a mosaic of information about that, that's quite contextual and specific. Um, and so those are sort of the three, if you will, that we run. Um, there's a good book uh, called Hitch the Perfect Investment by Paul Sunken and Paul Johnson, and they actually have a there's a picture in here, uh, and it's actually how we build our discount rate stack. There's a picture in here of what they say, all the variables
0: uh, mm. in
1: a discount rate are. Here it is, um, company-specific uncertainty, industry-specific uncertainty, country-specific uncertainty, equity risk premium, risk-free rate. And then they actually break it down one level further. Um, but you know, we we basically build a discount rate up uh, using roughly that that model to be perfect. Yep.
0: yep. No, that makes sense. And then when you when you build that model, let's say you use eight percent, right? Are you backing into, you know, hey, massive needs a three to five x. We need a five to ten x. Because again, when you're in these junior explorer, probably the highest torque on the spectrum. There, you know, there's a lot of embedded risk. Um, so what's the return that you're looking for, given the exposure that you're that you're uh, getting? Um,
1: it again sort of depends, but with a junior miner turning on a mine, uh, at the very least, it's got to be a double. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if it's a producing mine, you know, like le- we invested in Barrick a couple of years ago, let's say. Like we didn't need a double out of Barrick. Um, yeah. We ended up getting one, but, you know, we didn't need a double. double. Uh, we do have a hurdle rate um, and that's 14% per annum, uh, but on an individual investment, especially in the mining space, we'd look for, for more than that. Um, but I guess if the timeline was right, and it just worked out to 14%, I don't know, I'd have to think about that. Uh, but to date, we've had we've made, um, since 2016, we've made uh, 16, inve- I guess it's now it's 16, 16 investments in different mining firms. Um, six of them are still on the books. We've exited 10 of them. And just to give you an idea, the one we exited, we lost 50% of our money on, the rest of them, All had returns in excess of 100% across the board. Within our current portfolio, um, of the six that remain, uh, one of them uh, is now well in excess of a 500% return.
0: Um, Nice.
1: One of them is, you know, a 200% return. And the rest of them we think of as being at least 100%. Yeah, so that that hundred, I expect at least a double. So over a couple of years,
0: I'm gonna end this 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 podcast with a couple hard questions, um, just because you know I don't want to make it easy for you. Okay. The first one, and it's it's directly related to what you just said about kind of looking for doubles and things like that. How do you know when to exit an investment? Let's say it goes well. It's very easy to exit when it doesn't. So I'm not letting you off the hook when it goes well. When the mine is cranking. The all in sustainable costs are low. They're in the bottom quartile. Things are looking good. How do you know when to exit?
1: It's so hard. Um, and, uh, we blew it recently. Um, so Equinox gold is a company we're investing in. We've been invested in it for a while. Um, I think we entered in, uh, late 2019 or something like that. Um, God, it got all the way up to, in, I'm talking U.S. dollars now, trading in both U.S. and Canada. So just so people are clear. Uh, 2020, I think it got up to $13. And we sort of thought it was worth $15. We didn't, we didn't trim. We did nothing. And now it is, I think it, it fell as low as maybe $3 U.S. So, so, oh. so we've gone all the way back down to That's where we were Brutal. Is back up a little bit now but um yeah when you exit is really hard what I'd say is um and I actually talked about this in our quarterly letter I just finished it last night um I talked about this exact example uh there's a book by a guy named Lee Shore called the art of execution and he talks about sort of his i guess he's a Maybe he's a fund of funds manager or something. I don't know. He's he's, he's he's had a lot of hedge funds that he's invested in. And he talks about what they've done successfully on the building position side and what they've done successfully on the exiting. And he categorizes exits, how people exit as one of two things. They're either connoisseurs who enjoy every last sip, uh, or there are raiders. Um, and the raiders, uh, they seem to get out after uh, no more than, or after, after a 50% or lower gain, like 20 to 50%. Um, The people who seem to make money in his experience and in his research were the connoisseurs. And so we do try to let our winners run. Um, And and gold is particularly difficult with that because it is so sentiment driven. Uh, But what I would say with uh, turning on a mine, we get very sort of careful about how long we stay in an asset when they're turning on a mine because that ramp up phase uh is is plagued with problems now they're not problems that any investor shouldn't expect which is kind of annoying uh, because if you should expect it the stock really shouldn't do much when it it happens. should be
0: priced in <laughs> yeah
1: but for some reason everyone is still always surprised when you turn on a $500 million asset that you've built. And it doesn't go like swimmingly on day one.
0: Um, When you're in the jungles of Mongolia. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah. When you're wherever you are. Um, So we do get kind of careful around uh, exits uh, when people are turning on a mine. And we probably exit, uh, like I'm considering exiting our position in Adriatic metals right now. Adriatic metals, uh, is we've got about 94, 95% of the return. We think we're going to get out of it. And they're going to be turning on the mine shortly soon this year, maybe first quarter next year. I'd have to double check exactly the dates, but it's kind of a complicated flow sheet and it's a polymetallic deposit, which basically Why is that means, complicated. Well, so there's a lot of different You've got to separate out all the different metals along the way to get to the clean concentrate that you want to sell. Mm. Um, and when you have to start separating out all these different things, you've got chemistry complications and and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, and so, I think ninety four percent of the gain that I might be I might expect, you know, that's that's pretty good. Um, I don't need every last penny um, to make it a successful investment. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's one of the critical things about mining or any natural resources investing, I think is, is, is again, it's, you want to be accurate, but if you need to be precise, it's not an industry for precision. It's not even to be perfectly frank, an industry, if you're in the industry, it's not a precision industry, right? Like when, when a mining firm starts a mine, uh, they have a vague idea of what is going to happen and where the ore is and stuff like that. But that's a fluid process. They start digging that pit or or what, whatever, following a vein underground. Um, it doesn't go according to what the initial drill results said. It's, mm-hmm. you know, information informs the process on every day. That's why oftentimes, uh, you know, y- you'll only see a plan out. Then you see this, especially with Australian miners, um, the 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 jork uh, statement, which is the equivalent of a 43101 in Canada. Um, oftentimes it only goes out like four or five years, right? Be- because they've only drilled it out to that level. They've drilled it out sufficiently such that they know there's something economic here that they can mine economically, but they haven't necessarily discovered every aspect of this ore body. Um, mm-hmm. so accuracy, not precision.
0: And I think that's also what makes it hard to sell too, because like what you just said like when the when they do the pre when they do the pre feasibility studies they do kind of the minimum effectiveness to get a project funded not necessarily to say how much is there and so what you'll see and you know we're invested in a in a copper co- and it's it's you know small so I I won't name it but we're invested in a copper company in Canada where they're in a geological spot where historically when you start mining when you start drilling the amount of material that you can bring out of the ground explodes exponentially. So where you think that there's, you know, let's say for numbers purposes, a hundred tons of copper in this field, you start drilling, you start drilling. Maybe there's a thousand, maybe there's ten thousand. You just don't know because that pre-feasibility study is just doing enough to get investors to say, okay, I think that this is a good chance based on what we barely can see, what we barely can tell. And then that's when it gets hard. Cause like, when do you start to sell? Like if <laughs> they keep drilling and they keep finding these high grade coppers, let's say like, you know, over 1%, which now like anything over 1% copper is pretty remarkable Yeah. Um, depending on how far down you go. And so that's where you add even more complications to the selling process.
1: No, it's, uh, it's not an easy industry. It's, uh, every deposit different. Every company thus is different. Um, and, uh, in some regards, that's what makes it so much fun, though, mm-hmm. right? So um, it's always a new puzzle every day. Yeah, um, I guess you could say that about investing, just sort of writ large. And it, it absolutely is true, but uh, not everybody gets to deal with the same big toys. So
0: <laughs> there's something about those big yellow trucks, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I saw? I saw a video, and this is completely on on a tangent. I saw a video. I think it's from Caterpillar, but it was uh, it was on Twitter and it was a guy sitting in an office like this remote controlling a huge earth mover yeah. like with a joystick like he was playing call of duty and i'm like yeah. man that is like and i and i thought i'm like if you're going to solve the decarbonization problem and if you're going to like solve all this just put all of those tools in the hands of teenagers that play video games and just say like, hey, just do this. We'll pay you to just play this game and they will not know the difference. Oh,
1: no, that's funny. That's interesting. Yeah. I think the um, you know, I I I said they had to build uh talk about iron ore. I think Rio Tinto or BHP, they, you know, they built this long train. Um, I I think the train is run the same way now at this point. It's amazing. Um, and it's like a it's a couple hundred miles, I think. Um, you know, it, it's the middle of nowhere in Australia, but I, I think the train is run from, you know, Perth or Sydney or, or something, and uh, it's completely the other side of the country. Um, it's it's remarkable. So uh, yeah.
0: And you mentioned you mentioned this in a couple other podcasts, and like the technology, like people think technology exists in Silicon Valley, and it's you know they think it's in they think it's in the bits, but really like. Man, if you look at the technology that's going on in some of these mining projects and some of these, you know, oil and gas, like I I, I posted a, a video on how, you know, drilling for oil works and like, yeah. that's a technological miracle.
1: Oh, it is. It absolutely. Is. The intellectual capital and intellectual sort of property, if you will, of these firms, I mean, it's not on the balance sheet or anything, but, you know, you look at someone like Rio Tinto or Freeport-McMoran and, you know, what they know about those deposits. uh even if that, like if you could package and sell that um, as separate from the deposit in some way, you know, there's tremendous value in it. Uh, you wouldn't want to, in, in many regards, you wouldn't want to buy a deposit without that associated intellectual capital. Hmm. Um, and then to your point, I mean, the technology associated with it, again, we go back to this sort of the, the the soul gold, let's say we're not invested in soul gold, by the way, it's just, I don't know why it keeps coming up today, but uh, you think about block cave mining. Um, you know the the only company I know of who has done a couple of block caves and gotten them all to work is Newcrest. Well, the value, the intellectual capital associated with the understanding of block cave mining, is probably quite significant. Um, you know it's it's not uh, it's not easy, and uh, those processes, uh, disciplined execution is essential for the industry, and disciplined execution is some kind of intellectual property in many regards
0: it does make me wonder because i was working on a essay for our collective um using michael mobison's intangible asset framework and kind of reworking the income statement to show mm-hmm. the assets um and it just makes me wonder like if you took a metals and mine like let's say you take a freeport mcmoran or you took a of gold and you know like what's like what percentage of their sgna is actually that valuable asset mm. and could that be amortized uh, in a way that Gap doesn't account for, and then if it could, that probably changes the picture of that company's profitability immensely. Yeah, especially now where no one wants to do the work. Like mm-hmm. that would be a fun exercise. It's like to take like the big producers and say like, look, like no one's entering the space. Everybody wants tech. The value that these firms have inside their brains is so hard or is so is so high, and they can't put it on paper because you see it as SG&A as salaries. But what if 60% of that salary is intellectual property that is so valuable and you amortize that over, you know, like the life of a mine or, you know, five or 10 years. And then like your EBIT explodes, I bet.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's an interesting idea. Uh, Absolutely. Um, I mean, they definitely, those companies have, you know, geologists who are expert on, you know, Nevada gold or, you know, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, to the next gold miner. That's probably worth while. Well, it's weight in gold. So. Yeah, <laughs> um,
0: I like that pun. <laughs> so the second question I have for you, and it took it t- took a while to get us to the second question, but I'm glad it did. Um, this is probably harder. If you could pick one metal or material to invest in for the rest of your life, and you could only choose one, what would it be, and why? Um like asking you to take one kid and just choose one kid over multiple kids for the rest of your life maybe yeah
1: well maybe not quite that that hard but uh it definitely um you're not always going to be making money which is the challenge um (laughs) i guess it, it, it would probably be copper um you know which which not and and keep in mind i say that not because of this sort of outlook this very rosy outlook of copper that that we've sort of depicted here during this conversation but more just because there's uh it's global copper's everywhere it's used in all kinds of different things um the deposits are getting very complicated which has got some of its own interest from a just sort of a a studying perspective. Mm-hmm. Um its ties to the economic cycle are quite uh quite intriguing. Um there's a lot going on with it that um uh would make it you know an interesting commodity to just focus on uh, all the time. Um just because of all the different use cases. And it's just it, it would be an interesting it would definitely be some sort of base uh, or industrial metal, it wouldn't be gold or, or anything yeah. like that. Um, something with a lot of different uses and, uh, global sort of exposure and stuff. So probably copper.
0: Yep. Yeah. That's, I mean, I agree. <laughs> so that's why I like the answer. <laughs> so, uh, I do, I do want to wrap up, you know, I want to be cognizant of your time. It's, we, we've we almost taken an hour and a half, we which just flown by, um, but I've learned so much from this, um, you know, like I thought I would because I've listened to a couple of your other podcasts. And I'm like, man, if I could steal 90 minutes of this guy's time, that'd be amazing. Well, um, hopefully I
1: didn't repeat myself too much.
0: No, 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 no. If I'm doing my job correctly, then hopefully you didn't. Um, so last last couple questions for you. Where can people go to find out more about you? You and your firm and all that.
1: Yeah. So uh, you go to our website, www.massivecap.com um please feel free to sign up we've got a blog and we publish research of you know different kinds sometimes we publish white papers sometimes it's uh, research reports on individual companies and our letters are all up there and they're available uh we're also on twitter um i'm on twitter under wm thompson 22 i think is what it is um and i tweet a little bit um sometimes more than others, uh, sometimes less. So, uh, that's how you can find us.
0: There you go. And the last question I ask every guest, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Oh,
1: one person past or present, who would it be and why? Uh, Oh, jeez.
0: <laughs> um, no one ever makes it to the end of this outline when I send it to them.
1: <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't see that question. At the end. There, sneaks up. There, on it. It, there it is. At the end. Um, I'm, I'm going to go with something like controversial. I, I would say I, I'd really like to talk with someone who's made big decisions that just really blew up in their face. Um, you know, like disastrous decisions. Um, you know, so, uh, uh, you know, like Winston Churchill after Gallipoli or Mao after the Cultural Revolution or something, you're talking with someone who's just made a giant blunder of epic global proportions, uh, n- not to critique them or anything, but just to, you know, w- what do you learn from that? You know, mm-hmm. like, what did Winston Churchill learn from Gallipoli? Uh, did Mao learn anything from the Cultural Revolution or the Great Famine, you know? Um, people who are in a position to make those kinds of decisions, uh, you don't come across them very often, and there aren't that many decisions of that scale made. Um, yep. So it would be interesting to have dinner with someone like that, and and there obviously is a long list of people who have made giant blunders. Um, but that would be interesting and it'd be interesting to know how you how you bounce back from it um yeah i'm i you know that that that's hard um Hard to bounce back from some of those things so
0: yeah no that's that's a cool angle no one's really taken that angle before um but i but i think that's really that's a really interesting because i think it'd be a, especially if the person was like very open and transparent about their errors like that would have to be a prerequisite
1: yeah no that, that would have to be a prerequisite for sure uh, uh otherwise it would just be uh you know very loud defense of their 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 blunder which would not be <laughs> interesting so <laughs>
0: Awesome. Well, Will, this has been fantastic. I can't wait to release this. Um, I hope people learn as much as I did. And best of luck with Massive. I really think you guys have some tailwinds at your back. I'm gonna knock on wood so I don't jinx you guys. Uh, you. But best of best of luck. Rest of this year. Best of luck with you know you know any any metals super cycle that may come your way. Uh, I hope you guys take full advantage of it.
1: No, well, thank you very much. I appreciate it, and I had a good time. And uh, ha- happy to come back at any time and chat with you more.
0: This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by SP Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. Value Hive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash Hive. That's T-I-K-R dot forward slash hive.